Good evening and welcome to uh, another one of our tough questions. Uh, tonight we're going to start getting into a series of several, for several weeks, we're going to be getting into some of the more emotionally complicated issues we've talked about. Up till now, everything we've dealt with, and we've been doing this series since the fall, everything we've dealt with has been important. It's been things that uh, people have been wondering about. After all, I got most of these questions from uh, things that you submitted, questions you submitted through social media or face-to-face -face conversations or email. Uh, but, for instance, a month ago, we talked about how are people who live before Jesus, how were they able to get saved and go to heaven if they live before the time of Christ? And that's an important question. That's something a lot of Christians wonder about, but it's not one that really affects our day-to-day -day lives. In contrast, next week we're going to talk about what the Bible says about abortion. I bet every one of us knows someone who's had an abortion, even if we don't know that we know that person has had an abortion. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about homosexuality. Everyone, every one of us knows someone uh, who has that uh, sexual orientation, uh, who feels that same-sex attraction. Every one of us knows someone who struggles with mental illness. Many of us struggle with mental illnesses, and that's we're going to talk about what the Bible says about those and, and how we should believe uh, what our answers are there. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll talk about is it true that someone who's saved can never be unsaved? We all know people who have made a profession of faith or gone through some kind of religious commitment, have claimed Christian identity, and then later have walked away. Um, and then in a few weeks, we'll talk about uh, people who will talk about vices like alcoholism and, and, and well, alcohol use and drug use and smoking. We all know people who deal with those kinds of addictions. What does the Bible say about those? In other words, we're going to be talking about some things that really impact our day-to-day -day lives, that touch our families, that touch our friends. And so I want to be very, very, well, I covet the wisdom of God. So pray for me. Uh, pray that I will be accurate and biblical and compassionate uh, without hiding any of the truth of God's Word. I, I feel the responsibility of uh, doing a good job at this. Meanwhile, I, while this is on the internet, I'm going to be monitoring, I'm going to be listening uh, along with you so I can, I can see your comments. If you want to post comments on Facebook while you're watching this, I will be watching and I'll try to interact with you. And, and you can always call me. You can always email. Like I always say, if I say something that doesn't sound right to you, check it against God's Word. If you have a question, contact me. I'd love to talk it over with you. I'm not the authority. God is the authority. So this is a dialogue, right? I'm not the, the smart guy giving the answers. I'm trying my best to model how to walk through God's Word on all these issues. And tonight we're going to talk about a really, really tough one, which is what does the Bible say about suicide? And again, this is an emotionally complicated issue because all of us have been touched in some way by that. We've had family or friends who have attempted suicide. We've had family or friends who have committed suicide. Some of us um, have struggled with suicidal thoughts. Some of us, I'm sure, some people watching this video have, have attempted suicide in the past. And so uh, this is, this is a, a huge problem in our culture. It's never been a bigger problem than it is today. Uh, you may not know this, but in the last 20 years, the suicide rate in our country has risen 35%. So at the same time as our country was becoming more powerful and affluent and free than ever before, uh, 
uh, the rate of suicide has been going steadily up. 35% in 20 years is, is quite an increase. And if you go back to the beginning of the church, the response of the church has been varied. In the early days of the church, there wasn't a lot of uh, talk about this. In fact, there are stories in the early Christian church of people who essentially volunteered to be martyrs. There's a story of a woman who, when one of her spiritual heroes was being burned at the stake by the Romans, she threw herself onto the flame so she could die along with him. And, and people uh, who willingly submitted to martyrdom, which seems in, in many ways like suicide, they were seen as heroes. They were seen as, as saints. Um, and it, in the Middle Ages, things started to change. Thomas Aquinas uh, really condemned uh, suicide, and the the middle the medieval church began to see suicide as a mortal sin. In fact, up until the the 1960s, the Roman Catholic Church would not offer a Christian burial to someone who had committed suicide. And the belief of a lot of people was that that person had gone to hell because of their sin. Now, the, the Catholic Church has changed that stance. In fact, in the 90s, uh, Pope John Paul, my own favorite of all the popes, uh, for what that's worth, uh, really clarified that stance and, and said that God is able to forgive someone who has committed suicide. But even so, even so, that idea has persisted. And there are a lot of Christians, Catholic and Protestant both, who have this idea that suicide is the unforgivable sin. Let me just say up, up front, if you don't get past this point of the video, that's not biblical. That's not what God's word teaches. But I'm going to ask three. I'm going to ask three questions tonight. Number one, uh, where did this idea come from? This idea of suicide being unforgivable. Secondly, what does the Bible actually say on this topic? And number three, how can we as God's people bring comfort to those who are touched by this issue? So, first of all, where did the un idea, the unbiblical idea of the unforgivable unforgivability of suicide come from. So in the Catholic Catechism up until the 1960s, there was a statement that said, we are stewards, not owners of the life God has entrusted to us. Honestly, that statement may still be there. Um, the, the idea being that because our lives don't belong to us, they're on loan from God, then to take our lives, to harm our bodies in any way is a sin against the Lord. Um, it's like if a friend loaned you a car and said, I'm not using this, uh, this, this car, why don't you take it and drive it as much as you want? You would be free to drive it and drive it as fast as you want, as slow as you want, but, but you couldn't sell that car. You couldn't drive it to the junkyard and drop it off there because you'd be essentially stealing what belongs to your friend. In the same way our bodies belong to God. And that is a biblical thought. That's not just in the Catholic Catechism. That is biblical. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, it says, You are not your, your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And that's right after he said that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's in the context of sexual immorality. Jesus, or, or Paul is saying, don't think that just because that you have this body and, and, and you know God's going to forgive you anyway, you can go out and do anything you want sexually because what you do with your body is important to God. Our bodies matter because our bodies are a temple of the Spirit. They are, they are His property. They're only on loan to us. So that is a biblical concept that is true. But nowhere, nowhere does it say that self-harm is unforgivable. 
So other people will come back with the argument, well, then if self-harm is a sin, and it is, because the body is a temple and it belongs to God and it's just on loan from Him, if self-harm is sinful, then suicide must be unforgivable because you've harmed your body and now you're dead and you haven't had a chance to confess that sin to God and repent. And that seems to make a, a weird kind of logic, but then think about it. There are lots of sins you can say that about. Uh, think about a person who gets drunk and then gets behind the wheel of a car and then they get in a wreck and die. That person has committed a sin and they haven't confessed it to the Father. Think about a person, uh, let's say, who it does an accidental heroin, heroin overdose. They're harming their bodies through their exposure to drugs and now they're dead and they never confess that sin. Think about a person who has a heart attack in the midst of committing adultery. I mean, you can come up with any number of examples. And beyond all that, I guarantee you there isn't a single one of us who can honestly say, I have specifically confessed every sin to the Father that I have ever committed. All of us are guilty of sins we've never addressed, never confronted, never admitted, never confessed. And yet, the Bible is quite clear. God will not let any sin get between us and Him, between His children and, and Him. Uh, in other words, our forgiveness depends completely on what Jesus did for us at the cross. Not on whether we pray a prayer of repentance or forgiveness. It, it depends on His action for us. Once you are adopted into His family by grace, through faith, through the shed blood of Jesus, then there is nothing that, can, that, that He will not forgive you for. So why do we confess sin, you might be asking? Why do we have to confess sin to the Father? For the same reason that I would confess to my dad if I did something that hurt his feelings. If I got mad at my father one day when we were at home and I, I, around the dinner table and I yelled at him or I hurt his feelings, I was disrespectful, I would need to come back and apologize to him. Not because I'm afraid he's going to reject me as his son. I know that's not going to happen. My dad's love is too, uh, too genuine. But I would do that because that's the right thing to do for our relationship. I would do that because that's going to make our relationship stronger. I would do that because that's going to make me a better person. Me owning up to this awful thing I've done to my dad is good for me. It's the right thing to do. And that's the reason we confess to the Father. God is never going to stop forgiving us. We know that. He's not going to reject us no matter what we do, but we confess sin because it makes us more righteous. It, it makes the relationship with Him that much stronger. So the idea of unforgivability of suicide is not biblical. We've established that. So what does the Bible say about suicide? Okay, there are six people mentioned in Scripture who took their own lives. I'm not going to make you play Bible trivia and try to name all six. I'd be very impressed if you could name all six. Only three of them are stories that are familiar to people uh, who are not serious Bible students. And, and those three are uh, the story of Samson. Samson, of course, uh, knocked down the, the pillars of the temple in, the, in the, the temple of the Philistines, killed thousands of Philistines, but brought that temple down upon himself, essentially in, in the act of suicide, killed many of God's enemies. Uh, the second one is Saul, King Saul, the king of Israel. Uh, when he saw the battle of Mount Gilboa had gone against him and he was about to be captured and tortured by the enemy, he fell on his own sword. And then the most famous suicide in the Bible, of course, is Judas Iscariot, who hung himself after... Um, he had betrayed Jesus. And 
the important thing to note is in all six of these stories, all six of the stories in the Bible of, uh, of suicide, there's not a single one where afterwards the Bible says, God therefore rejected them because they took their life. There's nowhere in Scripture where it says God hated Saul or God rejected Samson or God was angry at Judas because he took his own life. Or Ahithophel or Zimri or Abimelech, who are the other three, who committed suicide in the Bible. Um, and you might say, yeah, if you're really, really sharp, you might say, yeah, but doesn't Matthew 24, 26, isn't that where Jesus says of, of Judas, it would have been better for him if he had never been born? Absolutely. But when you read it, note what it says. It doesn't even mention the name of Judas. He says, woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. He doesn't even mention him by name. So what he's saying is, he's gonna, his, his, the judgment is going to fall on him, not because he hangs himself, but because he betrays the Savior of the world. So there is no place in Scripture, no place in the Bible, where it specifically says that that suicide is something that God can't forgive, or suicide renders you uh, under God's judgment. Again, we've already shown self-harm is a sin, but it is a sin God, for, God can forgive like anybody else, like anything else. So biblically, I can make the opposite argument. I can make the argument that guarantees that suicide will not keep someone from God's love. And that comes out of Romans 8, 31 through 32. You know this scripture. Romans 8, 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? For me, and I, I come back to this over and over again, and this is what Paul is saying. For me, the cross is the answer to so many of the difficult questions of life. The cross says that the God who is real, the God who exists, loves us enough to die for us. Loves us enough that he would die for us while we were yet sinners, while we were still his enemies. Therefore, there is nothing good he wouldn't do for us. A God who loves us that much, and here's how this applies to the issue of suicide. A God who loves us that much is not looking for reasons to keep us out of heaven. Instead, he's looking for ways to get us in. The God who loves us that much is not going to say, because you committed this sin, this one sin, and you never confessed it, therefore you're out. No, the God who loves us that much is going to say, you haven't changed. I, I, you haven't changed my mind. We literally cannot change God's mind about him, no matter what we do. The cross guarantees. The cross is the sign. But he goes on and says in verses 38 and 39 of Romans 8, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the Father. Once you've been adopted into His family through the shed blood of Christ and His amazing grace, what that says is, once you're in his family, there's nothing you can possibly do to make him love you any less than he already does. And there's nothing you can possibly do to make him love you anymore. And that is such good news. 
So the Bible never directly addresses suicide other than telling those six stories, but it does say that nothing can separate us from our Father and that He loves us enough to die for us. Therefore, there's nothing He wouldn't do to, to benefit, to bless us. The only, the only way we miss out on heaven, the only way we miss out on salvation is if we choose to walk away from Him. All right? And now, third question, and this is, this is so key. I hope, you, I hope you've listened this far and you continue listening. How can we as God's people bring comfort to those who are struggling in this way? Those who are struggling uh, in the aftermath of someone else's suicide or somebody who's struggling with suicidal thoughts? I can remember the first time I ever preached the funeral of someone who had taken their own life, and it was, uh, it was the ex-husband of a church member. Um, and I, I, I felt at a loss. I'd never done this before. Fortunately, I had a book on my shelf that someone had given me, written by a guy named Paul Powell. He was a preacher who had been passed, who was passed away by now. Um, but he had written, he had, he'd put out books full of his own funeral sermons. And I didn't copy Brother Powell's sermon. I didn't use it for myself. But he had a sermon in there that was specifically for the death of someone who committed suicide. And so I read through that sermon, and, I, and there was one thought that stuck with me, and I used this in that funeral. And I didn't quote him exactly, but I said basically what he said, which was, we can't and we should not judge this person. This person has chosen to take their own life, and that's painful for us. But we can't judge them because we're not in their shoes. We don't know what kind of pain they were going through. We don't know what kind of thoughts were running through their minds. We don't know what they were experiencing. The pain they were going through was profound. And if we'd been going through exactly what they were, we may have made the exact same decision. So it's not for us to judge. And that's the way I started the service. And then I went on and I preached from the Word of God. But afterwards, there were several people who were at that service who told me, it really meant a lot what you said about us not being able to judge. That really put things in perspective. And I was able to say, well, that wasn't an original thought with me, but I'm glad it was helpful for you. And that's important for us to remember. I want to share a quote with you from another uh, late, great preacher, Lewis Meads, pastor, theologian, author. He had this to say in an article about suicide. And I love this. Uh, I'm going to try to post this on Facebook so you can have it uh, written for you to see. But he said, Our most urgent problem is not the morality of suicide, but the spiritual and moral despair that drags people down to it. Loved ones who have died at their own hands, we can safely trust to our gracious God. Loved ones whose spirits are even now slipping silently toward death, these are our burdens. So what he's saying is, let's not waste any more time arguing about uh, the sinfulness of suicide and whether people who've committed suicide can be forgiven or not. That question has been asked and answered. What we should be concerned about is there are people all around us who are struggling. There are people all around us who think every day, I'm not worth living. My life uh, is not worth going on with. And that should disturb us far more than any of these other questions. We should, we must be involved in their lives and show them love and show them that they matter. So if you are someone who has those thoughts, if you are thinking, my life's not worth living, I, I don't deserve to go on, or some of those evil uh, satanic thoughts, let me just share with you three things. If you're thinking about suicide, number one, think about the people you would be leaving behind. Think about how your 
choice to end your life would affect them. Now, I know you're probably saying to yourself, well, they'd be better off without me, but that's a lie. They would not be better off without you. Think about the person, the poor soul, who would find you after you committed this act. Think about how that would scar them. They'd never be able to forget that. Think about the people for whom your death will be a wound that will never fully be cured, will never fully heal. I know that your mind is telling you, I'm not doing anybody any good, but the truth is, there's a whole raft of people who depend upon you, who need you in their lives. Don't deprive them. Don't take yourself away from them. If not for your own self, keep on living for their sake. Second thing I would say is, your life is of great value. You matter, not just to a handful of immediate family and friends. You matter to the world. You matter to God. One of my favorite, probably my favorite scripture of all time, I quote it all the time, is, is Ephesians 2 verse 10. We are his workmanship, it says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to do. That includes you. It says, we are his workmanship. That word workmanship in Greek means, literally means work of art. It means masterpiece. And you may say, well, I don't feel like much of a masterpiece. But that's what it says in the Word of God. It says you were custom designed for specific good works, which God prepared before you were ever born. That means that you are a key part of His plan to redeem this world. There are things He custom designed you to accomplish, people He wanted you to help, things He wanted you to do that would glorify Him. And, and if you choose to, to go away from that, you're depriving all of us. You're cheating all of us of the opportunity to see the great things God was planning to do in and through your life. And again, you may say, well, I don't feel very special. I don't feel like my life matters. I don't feel like anybody would be lesser off uh, without me. But can we all admit, can we all admit that sometimes our feelings and our thoughts are unreliable? Can we all admit that sometimes we feel things that aren't true? Which are you going to believe? The feelings in your mind or, or the, the Word of God. God says you matter. God says you're important. God says you're a masterpiece. Even if you don't feel it, wouldn't it make sense to trust and believe in that? And the third thing I would say is, there are people all around you who would love to help you. There, there are so many places you could call. If you call our church, 936-756-6601, and you tell them I'm struggling, you tell us I'm struggling, I, I don't know if I want to go on, I don't know if I want to go on living, we will get you help. If money's a problem, we will, we will make sure money is no longer a problem, but we will get you in front of someone who can talk you through these issues and help you. But reach out to someone, reach out to a family member or a friend, reach out uh, to, to someone, uh, call 911 for goodness sakes, call the, the National Suicide Hotline. Call your local church. Call us. Now, if you know someone who has lost a loved one to suicide, what do you do? The important thing is that you're there for them. I got to tell you, for those of us who have fix-it personalities, who want to just swoop in and, and solve someone's problem problems and make things okay, this is frustrating because grief is a long, complicated process. It doesn't get over with in a day or a week or a month. 
So for us to help people who are struggling, we have to be there over a long period of time. We have to go and sit with them, not once, but over and over again, and just sit in their presence and resist the temptation to feel like we have to say something that makes it all okay, because we can't. Don't try to defend God. Don't try to defend the person who took their own life. Don't try to explain why this happened. Don't try to distract them. That's one of the big mistakes we often make in this situation is we say, well, they're wanting to talk about this person. They're wanting to cry. I'm going to try to distract them by talking about happier things. Well, the truth is they need to cry. The truth is, if you insist on not talking about this person who's now dead, you're making them feel like you've forgotten that person. Follow their cues. If they want to talk about them, then you talk about them. If you have stories, share those stories. If they want to cry, let them cry. Let them, let them cry their eyes out because tears are a precious thing. If they want to rage at God, let them. God can take it. Just ask Job. Just ask David. Just ask the prophet Jeremiah. If they want to rage at you, stand back and take it like, like a man or like a woman. But be there for these people. This is your opportunity to walk alongside them, to bear their burdens. That's what we're called to do as Christians. Isaiah 53 calls Jesus a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knew what it was like to be burdened down by sadness and sorrow. Just before he was arrested in Matthew 26, 38, he said to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, Jesus did not commit suicide. He, he gave his life for our sins, which is something different. He did not commit suicide, but he understands. He's been there where you get to the point where you're ready to die, where you're ready to take your life. You're ready to end it all. He knows what it feels like. But it's noteworthy that that same night, John 16, he said these words, Take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus was filled with a hope, a knowledge that this world is not all there is, that better things are yet to come. And that hope, even in his darkest hour, that hope carried him through the worst day of anyone's life that has ever been lived. And that same hope is available to you and me. And all we've got to do is reach out for it. All we've got to do is trust in him. That hope, that hope is something the world can't take away. And you can rely on it. It will carry you through. God bless you. And let me lead us in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for today. We're grateful for your love for us, the hope we find in you, the love that you share with us and you shared with us at the cross. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would help us, help those who are struggling uh, with suicidal thoughts to recognize that life is worth living because you've created us and because you love us. Lord, help uh, all of us who uh, who have an opportunity to confront, to cover, I'm sorry, to comfort people who are struggling and help us to be there for them very faithfully as good friends should. Lord, we lift these things before you in the name of Jesus. Amen.